2: Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Maya Bandari. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. And if you want to find out more about it, head to crawford.anu.edu.au. My co-host today is Bob Cotton. Welcome, Bob.
0: Good morning, Ma. Great to be with you again.
2: So here's a fact that you might not know as much as 70% of all water extracted in the world is used for irrigation. This means that understanding how to make irrigation more efficient is going to be critical for solving the world's water problems. But what if it were discovered that irrigation policies intended to increase efficiency and therefore save water could in fact be doing the exact opposite? Unfortunately, this very phenomenon has been recently documented by an international and multidisciplinary team of 11 scientists and economists. The discovery implies that irrigation policies around the world might not only be pouring money down the drain, but could also be leaving countries high and dry. Today, we're wading into the issue of irrigation and hearing from two experts how it is that our water policies have left us up the creek without a paddle.
0: That's quite a disturbing image, Maya, and I have an equally disturbing one with several boats without any paddles at all all over the river. We have the new paper which is called The Paradox of Irrigation Efficiency and was published just this week in the prestigious academic journal Science. Joining us today are two of the co-authors behind the research, Quentin Grafton and Sarah Wheeler. Quentin Grafton is Professor of Economics at the Crawford School an ANU Public Policy Fellow, and Director of the Centre for Water Economics, Environment and Policy. He is also Editor-in-Chief of Policy Forum. And joining him is Professor Sarah Wheeler, an Australian Research Council Future Fellow and the Associate Director of Research with the Centre for Global Food and Resources at the University of Adelaide.
2: Before we get to that, just a reminder that we're really keen to get your thoughts on this, or any of our pods. Reach us at Apps Policy Forum on Twitter, or Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook, or just send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. We're looking forward to hearing everyone's thoughts, but for now, let's meet our guests. So welcome, Quentin. How are you today?
3: Very good. Thanks, Maya. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about our work. It's a real pleasure to be here.
2: It's a pleasure to have you here. And hi, Sarah. How are you going today? Yeah, good, thanks.
1: Yeah, welcome to be
2: here. So we don't tend to hear too much about irrigation in news headlines, but I'm keen to get into the paper you both have published. But before I do, Quentin, forgive my bluntness, but I'm sure most of our listeners don't think that irrigation policy is the most important thing out there. Quentin, why should we care about this? Why is it important?
3: Well, Maya, you highlighted at the very beginning in your introductory remarks, it's, uh, irrigation uses 70% or extracts 70% of the world's uh, global fresh water. It actually consumes maybe around 85% of the world's global fresh water. That's an enormous quantity of water, and it's used for good purpose. It's used to grow crops, to grow fiber. So what happens in irrigation has a big impact in terms of water and water availability. So although it's not a sexy topic, (laughs) irrigation efficiency, sounds like a funny sort of thing (laughs) economists and scientists might put together, but it's actually very important. And it's important not just for countries like Australia, which really depend in terms of irrigation, but also other countries, India, United States, there are a bunch of countries around the world that use a lot of irrigation, China, for example. So we need to know what's happening with irrigation efficiency. And more importantly, we need to understand the implications of increasing irrigation efficiency, on water availability and essentially that's what our paper does it looks at the paradox of irrigation efficiency and that paradox is really straightforward it's the idea that you can increase irrigation efficiency which is this ratio of water beneficially consumed by crops and fiber over so this is a ratio so that's the numerator over the amount of water that's supplied. so it's you get a number between zero and one. So the idea of increased irrigation efficiency is to increase that number, to increase the amount of water that's beneficially consumed for crops and fiber as a proportion of the water applied. So that's the that's the technical stuff. <laughs> but the, the really important stuff here is what does it mean for water availability? And the presumption has been, and maybe your listeners will sort of think, well, that makes sense. Increasing efficiency sounds like a great idea. But unlike energy efficiency, for example, when you increase energy efficiency, you're reducing the amount of heat that's dissipated or wasted in terms of the energy uh, transformation process in the context of irrigation efficiency it's something very different because what you may be doing is reducing the water that's available for other people other irrigators for the environment downstream and also in terms of groundwater and that's the critical point so increasing irrigation efficiency may not and indeed this paper's all about may in fact reduce your what we call return flows, flows back into the system, back into the water that's available for our other irrigators, back available for the environment. And that's very, very important for the reasons I've outlined, namely that irrigation uses so much water. So we need to know what water is being used and we need to know the implications of what happens to increases in irrigation efficiency.
2: Now, as you said, you've explained that paradox pretty well and the fact that irrigation policy is something that's going to affect everybody because it's water and everyone needs water. And your paper is titled The Paradox of Irrigation Efficiency. And thank you for that explanation, Quentin. Perhaps I could ask Sarah, is there a way out of this paradox?
1: There certainly is. If I could just make a general comment, so the importance of water scarcity and addressing it in the world. So um, 10 years ago, for example, the World Economic Forum, when they do their survey of what's the greatest risk facing the world, water scarcity didn't even feature on that list. However, in the 2000s, uh, from 2013 onwards, water scarcity is consistently ranked as one of the top social crises facing the world. So therefore, the importance of addressing water scarcity is very important. Um, and like Quinton outlined, irrigation efficiency policies have been put forward as one way to do that. So what our paper is is trying to highlight is that it's not a good way to address um, reducing water use. It has implications, um, and hence the paradox of, of irrigation efficiency. So, coming back to the question you asked about, you know, what's what's the way forward? Um, there, there's many way, many ways forward. Um, first of all, we don't believe that there should be, you know, uh, billions of dollars poured into subsidising on-farm irrigation infrastructure with the hope of trying to save water, um, uh, and. You know, that's, it's, it has a number of impacts. It reduces reflows, environmental implications. Um, there's also lots of implications of the rebound effect in terms of farmers end up bringing on more irrigated land. They change their crop use. They end up using um, more water-intensive crops. So that's that's part of the whole paradox. We end up using a lot more water rather than the fact that we were trying to save water. We end up using more water. That's kind of part of the paradox. Um, in terms of you know how we can we move forward, um, the paper does outline five different ways of, of um, trying to address uh, water use issues um, and the paradox of irrigation efficiency right across the world. Um, so one of them is is first of all, uh, basically we need more a better account, water, better water accounting. So in many countries around the world, and Australia is a very good example of this, we actually don't know how much water we're using a lot of the time. Um, so we're recommending uh, better water accounting, um, you know, developing this from the farm scale up to the basin scale, um, and to be able to really inform decision making. You know, we we can't we can't make good policy without Good data, and that's that's one of the one of the things that we need to do. We need greater use of satellite data, um, and that's that's a technology. You know, it's becoming a lot more easy, and um, amenable to use in the future. So, that's that's what the first way forward. Um, Second way forward, um, we're we're suggesting that reductions in water consumption are achievable by decreasing water extractions through putting direct caps on water offtakes. So this is about hydrological kind of considerations. We have to understand what what water use, what's the environmental take of our basins, um, and we have to cap water resource um, uh, respondingly. I might let Quinton talk about the other three. Yeah, so we have
3: five solutions or paths forward, and we think they're almost self-evident. <laughs> but uh, we think they have to be stated and restated because they're clearly not happening. And I just want to highlight one of the things that Sarah said. Water counting is critically important here. So just imagine flying an airplane without the measure of your speed. You know, You could end up uh, stalling an engine and <laughs> up you know who knows what can happen so so this is the sort of thing managing water, managing basin at a farm scale and at a basin scale, you need to know what's happening to the water. So that's a, it's a basic. So I just wanted to highlight that because uh, I know it's something that we collectively, as, as, a, as the authors of this paper, really wanted to, to stress. But the other three things I'd add to, to, to what Sarah has talked about is the issue of risk and uncertainty. So we know about climate change it's going to have big impacts in terms of evaporation, obviously, at higher temperatures, but it also will affect precipitation, plus and minus, depending where you are in the world. And of course, the change variation as well. So there's a lot of risk associated with farming, a lot of risk associated with what happens to water. So we need to take that into account in terms of our water planning. We can't just assume the world is going to stay the same like has happened in the basin plan here in, in the Murray-Darling, where climate change is ignored in any in any meaningful way. So we, we've we got to incorporate that that sort of risk thinking into, in terms of what we do. The fourth thing we need to do is to understand better irrigator behavior. So uh, Sarah mentioned the issue of a rebound effect. A rebound effect is just the idea that a, a farmer's incentives change as their irrigation efficiency changes. They may actually end up using more water, irrigating more land, changing their crops. So that's a rebound effect. So people changed as, as the circumstances change. you know, as the facts change. So we have to account for that. And so that's a really critical point. And we can't assume that farmers will just stay as per the usual uh, status quo. Things will change. And then the uh, fifth and not last, it's, these are all equally important, although you have to have accounting, water accounting as is, is a critical factor as well. So perhaps we'd rate that number one but you have to value water okay there's a lot of people care and use water so the idea that that irrigation is the only value associated with water is wrong it's a very important value and it generates a lot of food about 40% of the world's crop yields in terms of um, crop calories that we consume as 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 as, as on our, on this planet comes from irrigation approximately. So it's really important, but it's not the only thing that's important. Indigenous cultural values associated with water, aesthetic values, just the idea that you can go fishing, <laughs> you know, paddle or go, you know, all, I mean, there's a whole range of things that go beyond irrigation, just simply wa- water supply for, for, for communities. So we need to make sure that those values are also accounted for. And that's not to say that there may not be some trade-offs along the way, but we have to account for those values and value them. And if we don't do that, then we're not going to get uh, good outcomes associated with water.
0: Thank you both. Uh, Quentin, uh, and you've already sort of set the scene for this, You've both been actively engaged in public debates on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan within Australia, and let's come to Australia right now. And, of course, you were both signatories to the declaration issued earlier this year, which set out some serious concerns about where we're at with the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and how it's been implemented. I'd like you to try and reflect on what you said then and how it relates to the five ideas you put forward in the paper now on irrigation efficiency. How do you see some of those five being applied to the Australian situation in the MDBA now?
3: Well, I believe all five need to be uh, implemented. But I th- what I would highlight most of all, and certainly relevant to the 5th of February declaration that we all signed, there was a dozen of us who signed, and Sarah and myself mm-hmm. along, along with others, and several of our co-authors of the science paper also signed it as well. But the key here is is water accounting. So water accounting is not about balancing numbers on a spreadsheet and, and an Excel or on a piece of paper. It's about knowing what's happening to inflows, you know, precipitation, stream flows. It knows what it, we have to know what's happening in terms of extractions by irrigators and others. And we have to know what happens to the water when it's used by irrigators in terms of subsoil uh, or subsurface recharge, surface uh, runoff. And we need to know where those flows go. Now, some critical parts to that, we don't know in the Murray-Darling Basin. So it, it might sound incredible to your listeners, but we in Australia have spent approximately $6 billion so far in what's called water recovery. Water recovery is about getting water for the environment through the purchase directly and indirectly of water entitlements. That's a good thing, getting water entitlements for the environment, uh, corrects an imbalance that we've we've observed for a long period of time in the Murray-Darling Basin. Mm. But the critical point here is we need to account for the uh, change in irrigation efficiency associated with the subsidies that have been spent to acquire these water entitlements. So in other words, the Australian government has spent approximately three and a half, four billion dollars 4000000000 billion so far on on-farm and off-farm irrigation efficiency improvements essentially is what it is. Can and you what, comment
0: a bit on the reaction to your declaration by the state governments involved and by the
3: federal government? Are they listening to you? <laughs> well, uh, not, not not so far. We 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 we're hopeful that the royal commission that was commissioned by the south previous South Australian government that's investigating what has gone on and in terms of the determination about how much water should be extracted by irrigators and the deficiencies in the science and the evidence and the policy making and the decision making that that royal commission will at some point find its findings and that hopefully at that point we can get. some 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 traction and action. But but at the moment, no. Uh, We've simply called for three things. We call for one, stop spending any more money on water use or irrigation use, uh, uh, irrigation efficiency until we know what's going on and and the second thing is to know what's going on is this water audit a water accounting what's actually happened we don't have that we don't know that information and then the third thing is to have an independent body that would actually support the sorts of things that we've been talking about the sort of the five solutions so that's what we're talking about none of that has happened none of it has happened yet but the first and i think key point from our perspective is that we've got to have an independent comprehensive water audit of the Murray-Darling Basin. It seems very straightforward to me that you would want to have that if you spent billions of dollars. It seems to me you'd wanna spend a little bit of time and a little bit of effort actually working out what's happened.
0: Sarah, would you like to comment on where we're at in the public debate in Australia on all of this, particularly from a South Australian perspective?
1: Yeah, so, uh, Murray Darling Basin Plan was, you know, it, it was a great plan in the sense that it was a, a huge step forward. The Water Act was a step forward. Um, Australia is known all around the world as um, a leader in water policy, especially in the sense, you know, we've set up water markets, um, we have caps, uh, uh, we we have we do we are ahead in lots of different areas. Uh, not notwithstanding the issues that we're we're talking about today. Um, Part of the problem, um, which we were highlighting, is one of the issues when you usually get a big major reform up is that often you have backsliding um, and this can happen, especially happens five years after. And so Basin Plan was signed into law 2012, you know, we're now six years on and we have seen backsliding ever since. Um, you know, the Sustainable River Rivers water Audit um, was, was uh, cancelled. So that was a source of information and data that was actually very useful. Anyway, that got cancelled. We had the um, water portfolio moved from the environment to agriculture, which caused a lot more political pressure. Uh, The National Water Commission, you know, that was doing great work. That was, you know, that was one of the things that helped put the National Water Initiative together. You know, once the millennium drought was over, we was like, oh, our water problems are solved. We have the plan up. We don't need the commission. We'll get rid of it. And then it's some kind of... uh, functions and authorities were kind of spread out across a number of different other bodies. Um, and I mean, I could keep going on and on about the backsliding in water reform policy. And that's, that's what we've seen. Um, uh, within the plan itself, um, we had the amendment um, where we had uh, basically supply projects and irrigation infrastructure, as long as it had in them. I'm doing quotes here, you can't see i on a podcast, <laughs> but as long as we had environmentally equivalent outcomes, um, then we could use supply measures as, as one way to uh, basically uh, improve the sustainability health of the Murray-Darling Basin. And as a result, uh, buyback got capped and then stopped. Um, so buyback is the direct buyback of, of water entitlements. So all these things cause concern, Um now, if we're in a situation, so we at the point we're at now is the Commonwealth have about two thousand gigalitres in long term average annual yield. So, if we're at a situation, so they're they're on the way to getting what they think, it, well, what was put forward as as needed for environmental health in, in the Murray Darling Basin. But anyway, we we think it's a long way from that. Um, If we were seeing environmental outcomes right across the board um, and we are seeing some improvements in the basin, you know, so there is a really, there is a lot of benefits in salinity and adaptive management, Um, so I think it is important to highlight that. but some of the main problems that we're seeing is uh, the Coorong. So the end of the Murray, its water policy is often, you know, if you want to know about the health of a basin, you look at its mouth, okay? That's a, that's usually a good barometer of how healthy a basin is. Um, the Coorong has been in long-term decline. We're not seeing an improvement in its health. Um, we've got serious concerns there, uh, one of the outcomes of the plan, one of the objectives, I should say, was, you know, that 95% of the time the the River Murray would be um, kept open. Um, we have been dredging the river, the mouth of the River Murray for the last four years. So we're actually getting to a point we're dredging longer now than we were in the Millennium Drought. And we're nowhere near in that sort of, I mean, we seem to be heading into it with the current drought, but we're nowhere near the same point we were at the Millennium Drought. So all this means there's considerable concern about, you know, is the basin sustainable? Do we have enough water? Are we doing the right things with it? Are there other underlying concerns that are going on with the connectivity between surface water and groundwater? The whole issue with upgrading irrigation infrastructure and the reflows issue, um, you know, these are all con- are causing us concerns. So it's it's these fundamental reasons why um, myself, Quinton, um, Ten other people signed the declaration in February, saying we've got worries. You know, and we want this looked at, do you um, think that these concerns will be looked at? I, it's to some extent. I think the Murray Darling Basin Authority is trying to consider. They are they are convening um, work at the moment, thinking about the reflows issues, and I, I cannot say where that will go. Um, I think they're making an attempt, um, but because some of the issues we're we're also talking about they have they have many implications and they actually would need it'd be very expensive research um this is one of the reasons why it can get ignored and they can say we've got other priorities we don't think it's important so you know this is why we keep calling for it as as economists um you know we're trained in trying to work out what's the best uh, for society society as a whole not just private benefit you know one of the things we're taught very clearly is to work out social benefit versus private benefit and uh, the problem is uh, with a lot of the policies that are currently put in place um, especially the the on-farm irrigation efficiency and the supply projects most of them are really about private benefits okay they're the social benefits is, is not considered, let alone even the cost to taxpayers, whether it, you know, it's going to be economically justifiable or not.
0: I can see why you both signed the declaration. Uh, anyway, moving to you, Quentin, what role does the industry play in the Murray-Darling Basin? And I guess we all immediately think of the irrigation industry, but there must be other industries as well that require Assistance and access to water in the Murray Darling Basin area.
3: Of course, there's, I mean, a whole bunch of people, including communities that draw their water from the from, from the Murray. There's tourism operators, there's dairy farms, uh, there's all sorts of people that are fishers, fisheries uh, at, the, at, the, at the mouth. Or at least they used to be. <laughs> I mean, so there's a whole range of sectors, individuals, communities that
1: that you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts.
3: Use the water require certain volumes, but they also require quality of the water as well. So that's all fundamentally important. In terms of the industry, in terms of what's happening, I want to highlight and I don't want to push fingers, uh, point fingers at a particular individuals, but but I think we have to identify what's going on here and call a spade a spade. Okay, so George Stigler was a Nobel laureate. I had the good fortune of meeting him in the the, uh, early 1980s. So he's a Nobel laureate in economics. And he published work in the early 1970s on what's called regulatory capture. And so George Stigler was looking at a range of industries, uh, regulated industries in the United States. And he pointed out that the people who were charged with regulating those industries actually got captured by those industries. In other words, they started to perform their duties for the benefit of the industry rather than for the benefit of the national or public interest. It's a, it's a fact. It's just that you know there are many examples of that. And I would argue that's the sort of thing that's been happening uh, in the context of the Murray-Darling Basin. So the backsliding that Sarah talked to, my interpretation, a part of that is its regulatory capture. So in other words, that there's the irrigation sector has been identified as the key stakeholder. And of course, it's an important stakeholder. It's not the only stakeholder. But if you look at the Basin Consultative Committee, it's basically full of irrigators. You look at the you know, the the the, uh, the the board of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, key, key people there are irrigators. Now, nothing wrong with having irrigators being part of this, but but there needs to be a much, much greater involvement of others. And of course, what happens if it's just the irrigator's voice? You'll get the irrigator's voice in the ear of the public servant, the decision makers. And that's what they hear. And that's what they will end up doing and delivering on. But that's not what they are actually supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be acting in the public interest. And I would highlight the Water Act 2007 was very clear about what public servants, decision makers and ministers should be doing. And my interpretation of what's actually happened in the last few years is that the delivery of the Water Act hasn't actually been delivered in the context of what's happened in the last few years. And it can and should be, but it hasn't. And, and there's a variety of reasons. One of them I call regulatory caption. And we just we just got to call it as it is. <laughs> uh, this is not just an issue of in uh, providing evidence and saying, here's the evidence, do the right thing. We have to understand that there are reasons why, even with evidence, certain behaviors and certain actions will not happen. Uh, it's not unique to Australia, not unique to water, not unique to irrigation, but it, it's a fact of life and we have to call it as it is and we have to face it and we have to do something about it. Uh, just simply ignoring it, sweeping it under the table, pretending it's not there is just totally unacceptable. And of course, we can talk to a whole range of regulatory capture. There's a hmm. Investigations underway by the state of New South Wales under under its crime and commi- uh, corruption uh, investigations. There's a whole set of things that are being being done. I don't know where they'll they'll land, but the royal commission is in providing evidence as well. Of what's what's been happening. So we have to be cognizant of that, and we actually ultimately have to do something. We as people and we and decision makers actually have to listen to what's happening and operate in the public interest.
0: Sarah. Um would you like to comment a bit on the fact that New South Wales is now 100% declared officially under drought and one assumes that Queensland has very significant drought areas? How does all that impact on what you've been talking about?
1: Yes. Well, the one of the issues, I mean, drought is going to be... Uh, drought something Australia has always faced. Um, it's, it's going to be something... It's going to be a challenge for our farmers right into the future. So for me personally... Um, I believe that government doesn't do enough in trying to get irrigators and landholders in general to prepare for drought, to adopt land and water management practices um, that are going to ensure their resilience in times of drought. I think, I think our drought policy is very reactive. You know, it it seems to come about um, and. I think water policy is the same. It kind of comes about in a, a time of panic and we react, um, but we don't prepare. And I feel like we need to prepare our farmers a lot better than we currently do. And so I, I have a number of papers coming out about this. Um, so one of my bugbears is I don't believe irrigation infrastructure upgrades is, is one of the best ways forward in terms of um, encouraging farmers to adapt and helping them um, cope with drought. You know, I think there needs to be a lot more work put into other land and water management practices, really, really um, working with the uh, land conditions. So there's lots of farmers out there who are are doing a very good job, who are very well prepared for drought, but you don't often hear about their stories. I mean, um, we only hear about really what we see the pictures we see the dying livestock we see the bear paddocks but we actually don't often see the um, the the farms that actually still have land cover who work very hard to make sure they always keep land cover on because a lot of the time when you lose pasture and grasses it can take decades to re-establish or can never come back properly. So again, it's about management. It's about preparation. It's about um, preparing our, our farmers um, for the climate change future that is facing us. Um, yeah. So I, I personally think we need to do a lot of more work in that area. Um, and that's what Partly, what upsets me about water policy is we pour billions and billions of dollars into a policy that is very poorly thought out. Um, we we don't understand the implications of it, um, apart from economists who keep banging on about some of the uh, the implications. Yeah, sorry about that. But um, uh, you know, I I being an economist, you know, I want to put money, you know. To get money for policy is very, very difficult, and so when you do have money on the table, let's spend it where it's going to make the greatest impact, and and also protect our land and water assets at the same time. Don't. So
2: you're saying we need to be more proactive. We do. We need to do
1: plant. Yes, exactly. Um, You know, we don't just, don't just come up with a policy that we think solves everyone's problems and addresses rural community decline. Who would
0: you say, both of you, whose job is it to get down there with the irrigators and actually explain and talk to them where you're talking? Is it the the National Party? Is it the Liberal Party? Is it state governments? Is it industry representatives? Um, You people do wonderful work putting all this out there, but who's actually going to talk to your your irrigator and get this across?
1: In terms of... um, preparing them he's preparing and for a drought thing. and getting you know yeah. having those well, sort of methods a, a you know you've got top-down policy so top-down policy can impact on what farmers choose to do and one example is irrigation infrastructure policy which changes the capital cost which increases the conversion um, to more modernized systems okay so that's a top-down policy so a as an economist, you'd remove all these sort of policies that are uh, changing irrigator or farmer behaviour um, for the worse. Um, from a bottom-up approach, um, you know I believe there needs to be more investment in extension, um, knowledge-based skills. Um, you know, there's there's things such as farmer field schools, which I've been hearing about, whereas a lot of landholders kind of um, this is really in the regenerative space um, where they they go and visit each each week they'll visit a different farm and learn how that. Farm is dealing with a particular problem and they're really, they're learning a lot from that. And I believe there should be more initiatives like that supported. Uh, you know, we're dealing with soft management skills and knowledge skills here a lot, not just technology and, you know, i just adopt this and I'll solve my problem. It's, it's learning management, it's changing mindsets. So A, you have top-down policy you know, trying to set up um, ways you can do this, but B, you encourage extension and field skills, et cetera. So that's that's what I would suggest.
2: Now, just going back to your recent paper, one of your co-authors noted that the irrigation efficiency paradox has, in fact, been known about for decades. But why are we only talking about this now? How can we be proactive when we're just sweeping this under the rug and ignoring the issue?
3: Yeah, so irrigation efficiency has been well known in a very specialized literature since at least the early 1990s. In fact, before then as well. So the US Supreme Court made uh, statements about measuring return flows back in 1964 in the context of uh, public lands in the United States. So so this is not something you know where we're talking over 50 years ago. So so why hasn't it happened? Well, I highlighted the issue earlier of, of regulatory capture. So so when billions of dollars are on the table, which has been the case in Australia but not just exclusive to Australia. I mean there's billions of dollars for water use efficiency or increases in irrigation efficiency as 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 we would call it in India uh, in, in more, Morocco, uh, in Spain, in, in other countries. When you put a lot of money on the table and it's going to generate substantial private benefits, guess what? <laughs> the people want that money and they'll do whatever they can to get that money. That's so we're just...
2: ignoring it for private gain.
3: Well, exactly. So, so the point about that I think we're emphasizing in this paper, and and I think Sarah was saying this earlier, just stop doing the subsidy approach, okay? So once you start taking money off the table, then the dynamic changes, you know? Then we say, well, what can we do to to actually help farmers, help irrigators deliver the food and fiber that we need in the world and at the same time provide increases in water availability? We've highlighted five solutions for that, but it does require that decision-makers operate in the public interest. Now I can't wave a magic wand to fix that, but one of the key things that we can do to fix that is to make sure there's an adequate amount of information and transparency about what's going on. And and, and in the uh, when there's no light, <laughs> then the little creatures will will do whatever they need to do to to help themselves. We need to have light, we need to have transparency, we need evidence, water accounting, those sorts of actions are absolutely required
2: and talking about transparency how are the five solutions that you propose how are they going to affect the farmers how are they going to affect us as everyday australians
3: it makes a huge difference so ultimately, the irrigators themselves will be the major beneficiaries, as well as, of course, all Australians, if we actually do the right thing by the basin. And will make sure that irrigation is sustainable and dryland farming is sustainable for the reasons that Sarah outlined. So we have to do that. There's no choice about it. It's not just about frogs and fish and birds. It's about people, and it includes farmers. It's short-term and it's short-sighted if we don't Actually, do something about what's happening in the Murray-Darling Basin, and indeed in other countries in Morocco, etc. So that's the critical thing. Farmers are the beneficiaries; they will be the beneficiaries. But we have to have the the right evidence, and we have to have the right incentives on the public servant side and the and the decision maker side. And I think that's part of the dimension and the problem that we've got. And that explains in part why these the paradox of irrigation efficiency has been overlooked or ignored deliberately or accidentally and that's why we need to change it now and and it's in, you know in 2018 this is this, this is 2018 right now the time is now to make these changes this time is now to undertake these solutions not just in australia but globally if we don't do that we really pose ourselves a major risk going forward in terms of our ability to feed ourselves and indeed the sustainability of the environment and particularly repairing environments. This is a critical issue. It's a global challenge. In fact, there's a global tragedy unfolding at this point in time unless we fix what's going on in irrigation in Australia and the rest of the world.
2: So then just as a final question to both of you, do you have much hope that policymakers worldwide will change course now that this new paper has come out?
3: I am always hopeful. I'm not. Re- <laughs> but it requires a lot of hard work. It's not about just publishing a paper in science. As much as we're pleased and proud to publish in science, it requires much, much more than that. It requires engagement with policy Makers, decision makers, and we've done that with the Murray Darling Declaration. But it's much more than that. It's about getting a group of groups of individuals together to do the sorts of things that we've highlighted in those five solutions. So I'm hopeful, but of course uh, we we always will have to struggle and fight to make sure we get good outcomes for people and for the environment, and uh, that will always be hard work.
2: And to end on a pessimistic note I guess, Sarah,
1: why are you not hopeful? I suppose I've I've been in this space for many years now and sometimes I just feel like I'm banging my head against against the wall. I I think that vested interests in this situation uh, are so significant that often it's very hard to be rational and it's very hard to say, look, um, for all the groups that are, um, will potentially benefit from reform, a lot of them you know, don't have the resources, they don't have the voices, they don't have the connections. Um, and that situation is going to continue. So it, it falls back often to a number of scientists who are prepared to speak up um and you know there can be a lot of retribution that um people receive quentin and i receive uh by speaking up so you know a lot of scientists don't want to speak up so that's 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 part of my negativity i shouldn't be negative i should be more positive but I can try and be hopeful, but no, I'm, I don't necessarily think the situation will change. I think we've still got four four or five billion dollars on the table to be spent on supply projects and on-farm irrigation infrastructure in the Murray-Darling Basin, and I can't see that changing in the near future.
2: So I guess we'll just have to see what the future holds for us, and we need to remain proactive, and we need to keep this conversation going about water policy and about irrigation efficiency, and i just like to thank both Quentin and Sarah for coming in today and for talking about this subject, which is affecting all of us and something that we need to really think about a little bit more. So thank, thank you, you both. Thank
3: you. It's been a thank real you. pleasure, Maya and Bob.
2: Um, but before you leave, just stick around. We'll be back in a couple of seconds to talk about all the comments that you had from our previous podcast. So a big thank you to Quentin and Sarah for that conversation. And I'm really excited to say that they've both decided to stick around to chat about some of our podcasts. So we've still got a full house. We've got Bob, Quentin and Sarah still with me to talk about our listener comments and to have a little discussion. But just quickly, Bob, what was one of the big takeaways you had about this discussion?
0: One of the big takeaways for me is the Indigenous communities along the Murray-Darling system and the sense that I had is that they're not very well catered for at all and really only there as an afterthought and that's something else that we need to take care of in future.
2: And so just to move along, we'll first talk about um, one of the podcasts we did two weeks ago with Sir Harry Burns and it's called A Picture of Health. And the comment was from Louise Brady on Twitter. And she said, never tire of listening to the formidable Harry Burns on causes of well-being, on policy and on listening to frontline clinicians and staff who he says make the real change. Now, Quentin, do you have any thoughts on well-being and public policy?
3: Well, public policy should be about well-being. The problem is, is that uh, we've identified in terms of irrigation efficiency, but it's a true for a whole range of public policies. There's no integration or limited integration. No thinking about it. So, so for example, the digital divide is a huge issue it's a huge issue in terms of well-being. So the people who have the least amount of money, the least connected are the ones who need public services the most, and they're the ones in most disadvantaged. So that's an example of well-being. But do we have the policies, for example, to overcome the digital divide? In Australia, I don't believe we do. Maybe in other countries that exists. But, but that's a one example of it's not just about human health or mental health. It's about, well, what's going on in terms of uh, our communications policies, you know, and how does that link up? You know, it seems to me that integration, that comprehensive thinking is typically lacking uh, in, in most public policy thinking.
2: Yes, yeah, so that was a really interesting podcast on the causes of well-being and how policy making plays into that. And a couple of weeks ago, Bob and I did a pod with Brendan Taylor called Is Asia Sleepwalking to War? So Mark Flynn said on Twitter, I try not to think of the immutability or not of Chiang Kai-shek's legacy at 2 a.m. in the morning. Now, this is in reference to Brendan Taylor's comment that the potential for war in the Taiwan Strait keeps him up at night. Bob, what keeps you up at night? Well,
0: like Mark, I think we all have our bad moments in the middle of the night, particularly at 2 a.m., Uh, China, of course, is a lot more to its position than Chiang Kai-shek. Think of Mao Zedong and the rest of it. China has a huge history and it's one we need to pay close attention to, and it's not all bad.
2: And so are there any issues in Asia that you think we should be thinking about? Well, there is the water challenges,
1: obviously, um, which I know quite a little bit about anyway. Um, Yeah, I mean, the Mekong is shared by numerous countries. And you know, there's often talks about water wars happening and everything, but in reality, across the world, there hasn't really been many, uh, very, very few um, water wars actually occurring. Um, There's been a lot more cooperation and treaties. So often talks of war aren't helpful um, if they don't help um, cooperation and other kind of forms of, of countries talking to each other. So that, that's what I would suggest. There's actually more potential for cooperation and treaties to actually occur than conflict. So
2: I just had another comment on this Asia war pod, and it was from Facebook. And Andrew says, Why no mention of India-Pakistan? Is that not also a serious threat for war this century?
0: Well, yes, Andrew, they, it absolutely is. Uh, it's just that uh, Brendan's particular focus was on the Korean Peninsula, the East China Sea, the South China Sea, and Taiwan. And particularly Taiwan was one that we all found fascinating, the particular prominence he's given to that. We really didn't have time to get into in- India and Pakistan, but of course the history between those two is really quite fraught, with wars on the rest of it and the current dispute over Kashmir. So, yes, good point. Let's hope we can get that to it in future pods.
2: And I had another comment from Hunter Marston, who has written for Policy Forum before, and he just said on Twitter, give this podcast a listen, fascinating conversation with Brendan Taylor, who sees some of the same structural factors from pre-World War I Europe at play today in Asia. Now, I think that this comment is a little bit pessimistic in the fact that we're comparing current Asia today with pre-World War I, and that always makes me think, are we going to be having another world war? What do you think, Quentin?
3: I don't believe we're heading to a, another world war, but I think the possibility of a conflict in Asia is absolutely real. Now, that might be a two week conflict or it could be a two or three month conflict. We've certainly had them before. India and China went to war, India and Pakistan went to war, Vietnam and China had a Conflict on their border, we had the Korean War. You know, I mean, so it's not these are not out. We had the Malay conflict. We had the, you know, there are various things we can point to in the past. So it's not like they uh, out the out of side of the realm of possibility. So I think it's possible. I think we need to do uh, what uh, we've all been discussing is actually make sure that those hotspots wherever they may be that we take them seriously. And we do what's necessary to try and bring about a, a, a comp- communication <laughs> that doesn't lead to, to to conflict. And and there are real concerns. I don't need to mention anybody by name, but there are real concerns about certain uh, actions that might be taken by certain people and certain certain powers uh, that might be uh, rather than. Um, reducing the the risk of conflict may indeed be increasing the risk of conflict. So we, we have to be cognizant of that as well. And I think Australia has an important role to play we are a uh, so-called a middle power. Well, I'm not sure what that means, but it means we're still, nevertheless, connected to to Asia. Asia is very important to us. Important trading partners. We've got a lot of connections in terms of our immigration to into Australia. So, so I think we are. I, I think an important player in terms of helping that communication take place through the major powers: China, India. Uh, Japan, United States, for example. Uh, so I think we've got an important role to play and, and I think uh, we should play it. And uh, we can only do so much, but I think that's an important role for us uh, here in Australia.
0: I fully endorse what uh, Quentin has said. I think that's right. I think Australia is respected in the world, particularly in this part of the world. We do have a useful role to play and we shouldn't think that international affairs is always something automatic about it. But in Brendan Taylor's case, he was point- painting it deliberately a very sombre picture that this sort of constellation of forces prior to World War I and World War II carried high risks? And are we walking into the same situation in Asia today?
2: Big questions to think about. And we've had tons of comments on Facebook, so thank you very much for those. We're always keen to hear your thoughts, so please reach out to us. You can hit us up on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, or on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or our email is podcast at policyforum.net. We'll be back next week with another fascinating pod, but for now, thank you, Quentin, thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Bob, for joining me today. And that's all from me, Maya. I'll catch you later.